Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's all about election 2020. So stay tuned for our roundtable discussion with some of our O'Neill and Associates and Seven Letter team. Hi, Kyan, and thanks for putting this together. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We uh, This is our OA on Air election 2020 roundtable. I'm excited to be joined today by my O'Neill and Associates and Seven Letter colleagues, Tom O'Neill, Andy Pavin, Jen Crouchin, Brendan Buck, and Ben Josephson. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And I do want to note that it is 1230 Eastern time on Thursday. Things are changing by the hour. Uh, so everything we're talking about is based on where we are currently at. So where are we right. at, everyone? Well, I, I think the picture is far different than it was a day and a half ago, um, where people, Democrats or Republicans, really saw a very different picture than what they're seeing right now. And, um, you know, I think, I think we tend to forget these things. But, you know, four years ago and eight years ago, we really didn't have the final count in until the second week of December, even though we knew well before that who the president of the United States is going to be. This year, it's a little bit different. The, vote, the votes need to be counted, every single one of them. And um, it, it, it's gonna show a very different picture than the picture it showed the night before last. Andy, um, what do you think about final counts? How many, uh, how many states will fall into the Biden and Trump camps and what will the electoral vote look like at its final stage? If I had, if I had to guess right now, um, I think it's pretty likely that, that Biden ends up with 306 electoral votes when you look at where the outstanding votes are in Pennsylvania and, uh, and Georgia and the percentages both of mail-in ballots and in some of the counties where those votes are, I, I think he catches them both. Um, you know, it, it's funny to me because I think we, uh, I'll give credit to, to Brendan for something I saw that he said online, which is, it's funny to see Democrats despondent over um, um, removing an incumbent president, which doesn't happen all that often. And I think some of us who are hoping for sort of a cathartic election may not have seen that. And, and, and we all forgot, as well as the networks who were broadcasting that night, that it was more likely we wouldn't know the answer election night. I mean, I kind of thought we, I, I kind of thought we were, but I was obviously over uh, enthusiastic or overly optimistic. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be in everybody's mind a message campaign, a message election, where the American public were going to go to the polls and show this, this incumbent president out the door and give the world a message as to, as to our level of tolerance. And uh, it just didn't happen. And what we saw was, you know, democracy at its very best, pulling out as many votes as they possibly could, both, uh, both uh, you know, remotely and, and mail-in, and as well as, you know, on election day. I don't know what we wind up with 160 odd million votes or, or thereabout, maybe even higher. Um, even if he loses, even if he loses, and we don't know whether he will yet, um, looking at the numbers, I think it's the case that President Trump will be the third highest vote getter of any presidential candidate in American history. And that and will only be behind Obama in 08 and Biden this year. And it'll only, and it'll only be behind by four or five points in the final analysis next to Biden. It's truly unbelievable. And so the pollsters, even though we were all kind of chucking away at them the other night saying, how wrong could you be? The fact of the matter is, on the final analysis, most of the better pollsters had them at four to six points, uh, you know, as a plurality. And uh, that's, that's where he's going to wind up. 
the reference you made, though, to Brendan, what was that about, Brendan? Yeah, I just found it interesting that, you know, it's one of those things where expectations can really get you sideways quickly. I, I think there were a lot of Democrats who uh, expected not only to win, um, but win resoundingly, like you said, to send a message to Trump, but also to take control of the Senate. And obviously that's not, well, I guess it's still, it's still a chance that there could be a 50-50 Senate. Um, but I, it, there was a, a pretty clear level of frustration and confusion, really, I think, among Democrats as to what happened down ballot. Um, and, and I get it. Look, the idea was this was going to be a, a big election followed by a big agenda, um, a big progressive agenda that people had been waiting for for a long time to try to try to do. Um, and now that's probably not going to happen, even if there's a 50-50 uh, election or 50-50 Senate after the special elections in Georgia, um, the idea that they're going to be able to pass big sweeping climate bills uh, or healthcare is, is pretty un unlikely. And, and then the funny thing to me on the flip side is, you know, you're going to have a Republican president get voted out of office and Republicans uh, are not only um, not having a, a reckoning with the outcome, they seem to think that this election has gone quite well and the takeaway for a lot of Republicans is going to be that Trump-style politics is a winner and that this is the way to go going forward. So I just found it funny that while Democrats are about to unseat a Republican president, a very rare event, they're down in the dumps and Republicans who are about to lose their president actually think that they've done pretty well. It's true. It's yeah, true. I, did, That's why. I did say with someone today about how, how they're managing, uh, some Democrats are managing to make... Uh, uh, lemons out of lemonade. Uh, again, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I sort of confessed to, to being a little bit in that camp and that, you know, I think I, I was certainly, you know, hoping that certain Senate races would go in a different direction. So, you know, not, uh, not, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily fault folks, but I think when you step back and realize, you know, how significant a presidency, you know, the, the, the Trump administration was, how significant it would have been you know, for the country overall, if he has second term and, and what it means that, you know, that Joe Biden will be president, even if it means that, that this, you know, progressive agenda that, that Brendan referred to has got to wait for two years or four years or, or longer. It, it's a huge reset, you know, for the country, um, ideologically, regardless of, of where you stand. And, you know, I think, I think that'll, that'll just become more and more apparent um, to, to, to Democrats as we get into December, January, and beyond exactly how significant and, and positive this win was. To kind of echo you, Ben, I still had PTSD going into this from 2016 and was very leery of the, of the positive numbers that were coming out. And, you know, regardless of how we end up in the House or the Senate, you know, it still is an opportunity for a 50-50 split. I think you're right. It's wonderful that now there's a real chance that we can have Joe Biden come in be the healer in chief, unite the country, bring us together. I don't care if we don't get sweeping legislation passed or major reforms. I'm just happy if we can get through this pandemic <laughs> and get on the other side of that, to be perfectly frank. I, I think that's right. Thing, when you look at it, especially the Senate races, you know, I think some of these candidates made a really, really big difference. I and mean, there's so little ticket splitting that when you look across the country that took place where you had either the presidential or the Senate or the gubernatorial go in different directions. It looks like Roy Cooper might, is going to be an outlier in North Carolina. Looks like Susan Collins is going to is going to win. You know, she did win that Senate race, and 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 Joe Biden is going to carry the state. You know, I'm hard pressed to come up with a, with a lot more of those. You know, as you look across the country, 
Um, but in, in those particular cases, those were candidates who were really just the right fit for their states and, and were able to, to, you know, in the case of Cooper, he wasn't going against a, a huge tie, but at least Susan Collins, you know, I don't, I don't know what the number is exactly, but it looks like she's going to outperform, you know, Donald Trump by at least, um, by at least 15 points in that state. I'm looking at Trump at 43, and I think Collins is up at uh, up closer to 56. So, um, you know, significant in, in some of these Senate races that, you know, candidates matter. On the flip side, you know, you look at, at what happened in, in North Carolina in that Senate race where that candidate probably, that Democratic candidate probably wins that race if, if not for the uh, incident he found himself in. So I, I think the rosy picture going forward, I think not only is, is, is Biden going to have to rethink his transition and what his cabinet is going to look like, given the results of, of the election. But I think, I think McConnell has to relook at his situation as well. Um, you know, they do have a relationship. It's a pretty good relationship. And I can see McConnell giving Biden some, some latitude here, uh, you know, on things like uh, the stimulus package, maybe infrastructure, um, where they can get their minds around something and get something done and as, as Jen points out, and to deal with, with the virus, to deal with COVID. So I, I see, I see a, a better picture than, than what I saw two days ago, to be very honest with you. I also think that McConnell's gonna look at his Senate caucus and he realizes he's got 22 Republicans that are gonna be up in 2022. That's exactly right. If he doesn't want a repeat of what happened as sort of Cory Gardner, if he doesn't want a repeat on, on some of these other vulnerable Republican senators, he's gonna have to look at, you know, his, he's, got, he's got an, uh, you know, Rob Portman's running in Ohio. He's got Ron Johnson's running for re-election in Wisconsin. You know, the Pat Toomey seat's going to be open. If he, you know, he, he's, he's got a Senate race in Arizona. So I think if, if, if some of these, McConnell's not going to be able to hang these folks and keep that caucus in line on every single vote, and he's going to have to let some of them vote off on some things if he, if he wants a chance to kind of keep his majority in the years ahead. I don't know. I haven't seen, I haven't seen McConnell forced to do that thus far and it's important to remember he's never had a, a, a wide majority he has controlled his caucus as well as anybody has ever controlled a caucus in the senate i don't see him doing anything different i do think you know i have an old friend of mine who's a reporter in washington who had said for months that he thought that quietly mcconnell would be cheering on a biden presidency because he can do business with biden he's got his tax cut he's got his judges already in place and I mean, today, the, 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 the crop of, of senators who will stand for re-election on the Republican side in 2022 looks less vulnerable than it might have a week ago. But, you know, they got a couple members who will probably retire, Kit Bond and Chuck Grassley among them. Um, you know, I think Rubio is probably happy with the gains that were made in Florida. That's a, that's a, that's a real plus, I think, for the Republican Party in this election is, is what happened in Florida. Yeah. Agree. Yeah, look, I mean, they have a relationship working together, but remember those times they were working together were largely uh, pretty high drama conflicts that they sort of had to come in at the last minute and, uh, you know, save, save uh, disaster with a deal. Um, I don't know that McConnell, just by his nature of having to, you know, deal with his conference, which is pretty rowdy itself, is going to really have a lot of, you know, he does control his, his conference, but that's because he doesn't necessarily push them too much. Um, he, you know, they're not going to want to go out of their way to, 
um, help Joe Biden. Um, you know, there may be, I think transportation, there is definitely an appetite for that. Um, there was with Trump, you know, it's always been sort of the running joke that it's transportation or infrastructure week and there's going to be something, but there actually is sort of a built up appetite for that. And it could be a natural place to do something. But beyond that, you know, you look at what Biden's agenda is, um, uh, healthcare, climate, minimum wage, uh, you know, a lot of these things, there just isn't a lot of overlap. And so it's hard to see where they come together to do big things because they just don't have the same priorities. Um, but, you know, there are going, always going to be pressure points um, and, and deadlines, funding deadlines that, that require action. Um, so, you know, I think if we're able to, you know, take anything out of their history is hopefully we're able to avoid calamity and disaster and know that there are going to be responsible people there who can work together when you need to. You know, look, we've got a ridiculous situation where the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House have not spoken to each other in over a year. Um, look, I worked for two Speakers of the House. That's insane. Um, and it just shows you sort of how broken down uh, the relationships are. Um, that, that hopefully will be repaired. And if we do face crisis of any kind of unexpected degree or legislative, yeah, they'll be able to figure it out and, and we won't have to worry about things. I, I just don't see a lot of uh, alignment and incentive to do much beyond sort of the bare minimum. And in COVID, I think, you know, may, may count as the bare minimum. Um, so they could potentially work on that, but I just don't think they agree on a whole lot else to, to really move anything. Yeah, I think COVID relief will be a real challenge um, because, you know, and it's uh, very much because of the, as you said, because of the caucus and because as leader McConnell doesn't push him too hard. But let's not, you know, I guess we could, there still is hope for Democrats if they uh, could potentially take the Senate. It looks like uh, both Georgia Senate seats are going to go to a runoff. We, we're not going to actually know for sure until January, uh, which means uh, Georgia is going to be the center of the political universe for the next two months. Um, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm from down there. You got to think that both of those are uh, Republican favored. Uh, as we've seen, turnout is just different when Donald Trump is on the top of the ticket and he won't be. I don't know how motivated he's going to be to do anything on behalf of those two if, if he loses. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there is still a chance, but, you know, look, Kelly Loeffler ran a super hard right campaign because she was, you know, trying to, to basically fend off another Republican. Um, and uh, there's uh, just so much uncertainty. And John Ossoff, you know, is a relatively generic uh you know, no non-threatening kind of Democrat that if things, you know, kind of break a weird way, I just don't know what the vibe is going to be down there if Donald Trump loses, how much enthusiasm there will be, and we know there's going to be a ton of money. I'd be curious to hear what you think about the House going forward, because the House took a, took positions very much, I think, you know, to support, to support the President. Um, without him there, with what, five, is it net five seats right now? That the Republicans pick up in the House. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the House works going forward. I think what will be really interesting is that we haven't had a narrow majority either way in a long time. You know, when I first got to the Hill, it was like the delay era. And 
you had like a six, eight seat majority and, you know, you kind of always knew who was going to get let off on each vote. Each vote sort of went 218, 217 every time. Um, when we controlled things um, with Boehner and Ryan, we usually had pretty comfy 20 seat majorities. Pelosi's had a pretty comfy 20 something seat majority. Um, it looks like very surprisingly, you're going to have a single digit majority for Democrats. Um, you hear chatter already about her Pelosi potentially facing a challenge. I don't buy that. She'll be fine if she wants to stick around. Um, the issue is there's just not a lot of room to maneuver and uh, House Democrats, are similar to the way Republicans, you know, the House Freedom Caucus popped up. Um, House progressives, I think, are getting a little restless and a little less inclined to sort of follow direction. And so I think she's going to have a really hard time um, you know, controlling 218 votes every time she, she needs it, especially when you're doing bipartisan deals with the Senate, that can, that can be tough. Um, but Republicans did what they needed to in this election. Look, the, the pitch to donors was, wasn't, hey, help us take back the House. It was, hey, help us keep it close so that if Biden wins, we can take it in 2022. Um, that is certainly within reach now. Uh, and the last two presidents, uh, saw the House slip away from them in their first two years. So history is on the Republican side there. It's certainly in reach. Um, I don't know that Biden is going to be a, the polarizing figure um, that could create sort of a swell to, to take the House back, uh, but it, it's in play. And so the, beyond the, the narrow margin, you're going to have some pretty fierce politics laying over everything that they do in the next two years. And I think one of, one of the outcomes from, from this week was that a number of the state legislatures that are going to be critical for redistricting um, for, for the you know, beginning of the 2020 congressionals did not flip from, from red to blue. And, th and that means, to, to Brennan's point, when you have a single-digit uh, minority in the House and you have uh, many of these states that are, that are now going to be controlled by Republicans you know, redistricting, the opportunity to pick up you know, a handful of seats just through that process alone is going to be significant. And uh, yeah, while I agree, you know, Biden might not be the polarizing figure that other presidents have been, I think by, by chipping away at that lead, the Republicans do set themselves up to have, you know, more than a fighting chance in, in 2022 to, to take the House back. And again, you know, I think Democrats paid attention to it, but it's another situation where, you know, the down ballot state legislative races, which were a huge cause for optimism, and you know, people were talking about Democrats taking back the Texas House and, and other Sort of similar bodies, uh, you know, didn't didn't I don't think they materialized at all um, last time I looked. I think I think it was a pretty clean sweep for the Republicans in those competitive races. I think one interesting thing, maybe interesting thing to watch going forward is, um, like I said, President Trump will receive either just less than or just more than um, he'll either be the second or third highest vote getter as a presidential candidate in the nation's history. That's impressive. My question is, if you look at midterms, how many of those voters are Trump voters and how many of those voters are Republican Party voters? I don't know the answer to that. Brenda, reflect on that, will you? Because I, that's an important point. Um, you know, we talked about the Georgia races and, the, and perhaps the lack of Trump as a, as, a, as a personality involving himself in that race. In fact, the imprint of, of Trump on the Republican Party is gonna be around for a long time to-, to Yeah. I've, 
I mean, I've long talked about how I think Trumpism is going to have a long tail in the Republican Party. But, you know, a lot of the context for that was I thought that he was just sort of squatting on the party and um, would have some downstream effects, but eventually would, would sort of leave. Um, but it's become more and more clear to me that he's not just, you know, renting the party, but he's, he's really remade it. And I think this election is going to crystallize that. And it's, you know, counterintuitive. He's, he's going to lose. But again, Republicans think that this is a winning approach. They are psyched that they're going to take back 10 seats. And you look at the people who are stepping up to potentially be the next leaders of the party. And I'm thinking of Ted Cruz's and Marco Rubio's and Josh Hawley's and Tom Cotton's. They're all playing the same type of populist grievance fueled politics because they think that works. Um, you know, a huge dynamic that's different than just 10, 15 years ago is there is not a real overarching party anymore. There is no establishment that sort of sets the agenda, controls, you know, the, the look and feel of the party. So you're just left with sort of one-off actors. Um, of course, Trump is still going to be out there doing whatever he's doing. But um, all of these folks who are now stepping up to be the face of the party um, have learned from him that this stuff works in primaries. And when there is no overarching party worrying about bleed in uh, the suburbs, you have people who are just going to do what works for them. And what works for them is playing to, to people's you know, victimhood complexes and um, blaming others and fighting the media. Uh, politic politicians do what is in their best interest personally, and they follow incentives. And right now the incentives are to keep being like Trump. I don't, the question is, can somebody do that without him? Like, is there a way to be Trump without Trump? Because um, he seems to have a particular connection with voters that nobody else can replicate. Um, so that is, you know, there is a real open question is if uh, Ted Cruz becomes the nominee in 2024 trying to run a populist campaign, can he excite people in the way Donald Trump did um, without the crazy, without the spectacle, without, you know, making sure everybody has their eyes on him. That's an open question. But for me, somebody who is really concerned about the direction of the party, um, you're, you know, you're looking at uh, drifting among growing demographics, uh, more educated voters, suburban voters, um, obviously minorities. Uh, it, a long term, it's a loser. And so I worry about it, like, okay, this is not a, win a winning long term approach, but those guys don't care. It works for them. It works for the um, the constituencies they're focused on. And so they're going to keep doing it and probably end up becoming a smaller party uh, because of it. Yeah, no, I, I, that, there's a lot there that makes sense, especially because if you look towards the midterms for the House, to try to keep those voters engaged. Like in, in, in 2008, right, the last record-setting presidential election year, Obama wasn't able to keep a lot of those voters engaged two years later in the midterms. And I think you're right, there will, there will be probably an impetus among House Republican candidates to really go hard at the populist and grievance side in hopes of hanging on to the, keep getting those voters to come back to the polls two years later. Yeah, Biden is, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a personable animal. He loves interaction, he loves negotiation, and he likes people. And he's, he's really a product of it. Even though they both served in the U.S. Senate, Biden's really a product of the U.S. Senate where Obama just wasn't. 
I also feel like Biden compared to Obama is just in a position of having to heal a greater divide. I mean, we've learned a lot about our fellow Americans, what we didn't know about them, certainly, as far as what motivates them to vote. They, you know, clearly enjoyed a celebrity apprentice style type attacking campaign and president. But also it came down to very fundamental beliefs, like how do you feel about, you know, your fellow Americans, Black Lives Matters, education, healthcare, children at the border in cages. I mean, a lot of that stuff was on the ballot. And for me personally, looking at the exit polls, I just can't fathom that more women voted for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. And a large group was that were women over 50. So I don't know what they're believing. Maybe they're, you know, spending too much time on Facebook uncensored and not realizing the fake news that's being thrown at them. But the analysis of the exit polls from this will be very, very interesting going forward. Can I actually talk about the Republican Party going forward too? I think it's a, is it a cherry picking that happened? I, was, I really like this. I mean, we saw that the economy, right? The economy was was a number one thing for a lot of Republicans and that's, that's perhaps what turned them out to vote. Were they willing to put, to your point, Jen, everything else aside for the economy? Um, for some, it would seem that way. And the idea, when we talk about massive voting and, and voter turnout this year, how do we keep it going? I think it's part of the conversation that we have to have too as, as a country, because do I think it is a polarizing president that was um, on the ballot was part of it? Yes, but Joe Biden also got the most votes in the history of, of a popular vote. Is it also because people had greater access this year? We leaned into mail-in uh, voting because of the COVID pandemic. People had options. People who normally were reporting to work every day were not all working on election day. Like, are these, there are some fundamental things that happened this year that I think are incredibly important too mm -hmm. that played into increased voter turnout and attention on what was happening. Um, and I think the COVID pandemic is certainly part of that, but it's the trickle down from that of, again, just the access to voting and, and how people decided to get involved. Yeah. The, um... You know, I'm just amazed with that vote. I don't know what happened to the sisterhood. I suspect it has an awful lot to do with their, their innermost fears being solidified by the rhetoric, the hateful rhetoric of, of Donald Trump. Uh, whether we're talking about race, racism, we're talking about the economy and what's, what, what's good for one's own pocketbook, man or woman. I mean, that, that resonates. Um, and we saw it resonate again. I mean, he got, what, Andy, four more million votes this year than he did for 2016. Something ever about that's a lot of votes. I, I actually think it winds up closer to six million more votes by the time we yeah, all. I think, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's an impressive. I mean, it really is. I, you know, I, if we put in a plug for you know a client, we were working for the past few months for a client on a on a uh, an initiative called AD for Democracy, where, like many other organizations, tried to increase voter participation. This was direct calls from our client to CEOs uh, to ask if they would commit to either giving their workers time off or giving their workers time off to help get them registered online or, you know, what have you. And I got to say that the, the, the success rate on conversions that is calling CEOs and having them sign up for it was, a, was, was astounding. Um, there was really a, you know, let's let, if there's, if there's a real positive out of this election, it's that we have, we have exceeded voter turnout for any presidential election going back 60 years. Um, and I do think part of that is 
we made it easier. And frankly, on the Republican side, where you know there always seemed to be um, seemed to be a position that was the more people vote, the, the the more danger it is it is for us. I think one of the most fascinating things we've seen is with with a huge turnout, the numbers went up for both parties by a lot, and hopefully that continues because that's better. I think the president's vote can can be you know roughly described to the fact that you know for a, for a long time now of polarization where you have a lot fewer ticket splitting, you have a lot, you know, far fewer sort of uh, red red senators in blue states or vice versa, same with congressional districts. And at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats are voting for their nominees 90 plus percent of the time. And you just don't have a huge swath of folks who are who are going back and forth who are, who are ticket splitting. You don't have Republicans voting for Democratic, you know, candidates for president. And you know, so I, I think that's the, the bigger thing to take away. You know, obviously the participation level was off the charts for any number of reasons, but I think, you know, I, I, I would expect going forward that those trends are gonna, gonna continue if not strengthen regardless of who the nominees are. But it's interesting because I hear Brendan's concerns about the, about the party. I, I just, you, you could, whether this makes it on air or not, I just think it's interesting because, um, I, I, I do. I mean, you hear Brennan articulate his concerns about the party, which absolutely resonate with me. And yet, he exceeded the vote total of any Republican presidential candidate ever. Squaring those two is a challenge when I think about it. Sorry, think, over. Final takeaways, everybody. Stay tuned. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I think it's I think it's a I think it's a brighter day than we imagined, as I said a day and a half ago, uh, and I think it only grows better. To be very honest with you, I have uh, I have a lot of faith in the system, and uh, I paid a lot of attention to what Brendan had to say because uh, before him I was there as well. Um, I, I I I think Nancy, well, you know, for for another conversation, but I I see a very much brighter day coming in in, in the efforts of working together between the Republicans and the Democrats. We'll see what happens. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Diane. Hey, Brendan, it was great to have you. Thanks. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you. Yep, thanks. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.